You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This podcast is sponsored by Talkspace. May is Mental Health Awareness Month, and Talkspace, the leading virtual therapy provider, is encouraging people to talk it out in therapy. By talking or texting with a supportive, licensed therapist at Talkspace, you'll gain insights, discover truths, and experience breakthroughs that will improve how you live and how you feel. With Talkspace, just answer a few questions online, and you'll be matched with a therapist. And because you'll meet your therapist online, you don't have to take time off work or arrange childcare. You'll meet on your schedule whenever you feel most at ease. Plus, Talkspace works with most major insurers, and most insured members only pay a $25 copay or less. No insurance? No problem. If you want to make progress toward a mentally healthier place, Talkspace is here for you. Now get $80 off your first month with promo code SPACE80 when you go to Talkspace.com. Match with a licensed therapist today at Talkspace.com. Save $80 with code SPACE80 at Talkspace.com. History isn't black and white, yet too often it's presented as such. Grey History, the French Revolution is a long-form history podcast dedicated to exploring the ambiguities and nuances of the past. From a revolution of hope and liberty to the infamous reign of terror, you can't understand the modern world without understanding the French Revolution. So search for the French Revolution today. When the great King Solomon died some 930 years before the Common Era, the Golden Age of Israel, united under a single monarchy, died with him. Among the twelve tribes of Israel, the tribes of Judah, Benjamin, Simeon, Dan, Ephraim, Reuben, Gad, Manasseh, Issachar, Zebulun, Asher, and Naphtali, Solomon had always favored the southern tribes of Benjamin and Judah, in whose territory lay the city of Jerusalem. His successor, Rehoboam, could not manage to keep the kingdom united, and the northern tribes rebelled under Jeroboam. Once divided, many in the southern kingdom of Judah, who kept their Mosaic traditions, viewed the newly established kingdom of Israel in the north as apostates. Thus, when Assyrian king Shalmaneser V conquered the northern kingdom some two centuries later, around 722 BCE, it was suggested that the subsequent deportation of the ten northern tribes was an act of God, a punishment for their idolatry. These ten tribes of the northern kingdom would come to be known as the Lost Tribes of Israel. Together, prophecy and folklore have transformed their story into simultaneously a legitimate historical mystery and a wide-reaching historical myth that has been baselessly used to both defame and glorify different groups of people. The tale of the lost tribes of Israel really only begins with their deportation and forced resettlement in, according to 2 Kings, the, quote, cities of the Medes, end quote which would appear to be Media in northwestern Iran. After that, they disappear from history. But the legend tells us that they did not integrate, that much as the Jews of the Diaspora later would, they maintained their cultural identity and fled eastward, away from the lands where they had been resettled. It would later be claimed that they eventually came after more than a year of travel to a land untouched by mankind, called Arsareth. It is here that the lost tribes remain to this day, protected 
and kept in place by a magical river, the River Sambation, or the Sabbatical River, so-called because it is impassable six days a week, but miraculously dries up on the Sabbath, a day on which travel is forbidden. But at the dawn of the Messianic Age, it is said that the Sabbatical River will be parted for them, and they will return to their homeland and once more reunite all the tribes of Israel. This is Historical Blindness. I'm Nathaniel Lloyd, and I have set out on a quest to find the abode of the lost tribes of Israel. Please join me for part one, Conquest. Before we continue, I want to thank my newest patrons, Chris, Laura, Malik, Dawid, Eddie, Michael, Stephen, Paige, and Danger Guy. And thanks to Bradley for his one-time donation on PayPal. I really do appreciate any support right now. As I'm struggling to supplement a significantly reduced teaching income due to pandemic-related enrollment issues. Something new I'm trying to supplement my income is launching a podcast audio editing service. If any of you are interested in starting a podcast or already have a podcast, visit profpodcast.com or email profpodcasting at gmail.com to find out about my rates for editing, mixing, and a variety of other audio services. Any writers can also take advantage of my copy editing services for your blogs or other projects. Now, on with the episode. Welcome to Historical Blindness. In my recent episode on Prester John, I mentioned that the famous Prester John letter claims the lost tribes of Israel survived in that legendary Christian king's fantastical kingdom. Much like the Prester John legend, the legend of the lost tribes has inspired many an intrepid explorer to search for them in distant Asia and Africa. And also like the Prester John legend, which was inspired in part by the Acts of Thomas, the Lost Tribes legend first took definite shape in the apocryphal work Second Esdras. Scholars believe this work was written sometime after the destruction of the Second Temple, when Romans captured Jerusalem in 70 CE. For a long time, this work survived only incompletely, as it contained a lacuna or literal historical blind spot of missing verses in the middle of it. It seems all Latin versions of this work had been copied from an original from which someone had torn out pages. These verses were not restored until the 19th century. Although attributed to Ezra the scribe of the canonical Book of Ezra, some scholars believe it to be the pseudepigraphal work of as many as five different authors. And indeed, it is picked and pulled from as if it were a collection of works rather than a coherent work. For example, the Ethiopian Orthodox Church accepts only 12 chapters from the work, calling it Isra Sutuel. And these same 12 chapters are valued by others as a text called the Apocalypse of Ezra. Originally, I was thinking of this episode as an edition of my Apocryphal Catechism series, but the legend of the Lost Tribes reaches so much further than its apocryphal beginnings, 
and has become so much more than it appeared in 2 Esdras chapter 13, verses 40 through 47. These eight verses established only that the ten exiled northern tribes left the land of their resettlement for a, quote, further country, end quote, deciding once again to obey God's commandments. So God helped them escape by holding back the waters of the Euphrates that they might cross. This appears to be the beginning of the legendary Sabbatical River, for it's said that in, quote, the latter time, end quote, God will, quote, stay the springs of the stream again, that they may go through, end quote, and return to Israel. Here in this Apocryphon, we are given the name of the untouched land the lost tribes traveled a year and a half to find, Arsareth. Some have tracked down in fragments and other works from antiquity mention of an Arsaratha, suggesting that this was an Israelite colony in Assyria, whose name meant City of the Remainder. But if that were the case, then it certainly was not in an untouched land 18 months journey away from the place of their resettlement. Other scholars suggest that rather than a proper city name, this was a corruption through the Apocryphon's many translations of the Hebrew phrase Erez Aharet, or another land. So at the beginning of the legend, all that we have is the ten tribes making their way over a river to a distant region where they will abide until the end times. For the evolution of this legend into an anti-Semitic motif, we must look to the 12th century, when the lost tribes were conflated with the biblical Gog and Magog. I mentioned this in my last episode about the Prester John letter, that a brief mention of the lost tribes in the letter would later be twisted into the claim that these lost tribes were actually the evil and barbaric Gog and Magog, supposedly trapped by Alexander within the Caspian Mountains. The history of Gog and Magog is one of biblical contradiction and confusion. A Gog is mentioned in 1 Chronicles as a descendant of the prophet Joel, but any who might consider the legend of Gog and Magog literally would have to view this Gog as unrelated. For the prophet Joel, if it was he who actually wrote the book of Joel, is believed to have lived and written during the Second Temple period, and thus he and his sons were not among lost tribes in a faraway Arsareth. In Ezekiel, it is prophesied that Gog and Magog will one day lay siege to the land of Israel. And here, Gog is identified as a person, the chief prince of, quote, Meshech and Tubal, end quote, in a land called Magog. These tribal names, Meshech and Tubal, have long caused their own debate, with many believing they referred to descendants of Noah's son, Japheth, to whom various dubious theories of racial origin have traced a variety of peoples, including Scots, Poles, and Russians. Nowhere is it argued, though, that Japhetites were among the northern tribes of Israel deported by Assyrians, for it is traditionally held that, after the flood, Noah's son Shem became the progenitor of the Hebrew and Arab peoples, as Abraham is counted among his descendants. 
Lastly, in Revelation, Gog and Magog appear again as the innumerable armies allied with the devil who march over the earth and attack Jerusalem. These sources actually don't depict them as evil. Revelation specifically says that the devil deceives them in order to draw them to his side. But by the time they are included in the legend of Alexander trapping them in the Caspian Mountains, which some identify with the Caucasus, they have become heathen barbarians and unclean cannibals. In fact, later Islamic texts depict the inhabitants of Gog and Magog as inhuman monsters with tails and huge ears that they use as bedding and claws with which they endlessly scratch at the wall that traps them. Considering depictions like this, it is clear that the equation of the lost tribes of Israel with Gog and Magog reflected and thereafter propagated anti-Semitic views. The first person to suggest the lost tribes were one and the same as Gog and Magog appears to have been French theologian Petrus Comestor around 1173 in his paraphrasing of the Bible, Historia Scholastica. By Comestor's retelling, Alexander had enclosed the ten lost tribes of Israel within the Caspian Mountains and had been able to do so only with the help of the God of Israel. Comestor's work saw widespread use in universities, and with translations in every Western European vernacular language, it became widely read as a quote-unquote popular Bible for centuries. It's no surprise then that after it became so popular, later editions of the Alexander Romance and the Prester John letter were altered to conflate these two legends with the Alexander Romance's mention of Gog and Magog thereafter transformed into a reference to the Lost Tribes, and the Prester John letter's mention of the Lost Tribes conversely changed into a reference to Gog and Magog. The conflation of the two reached their anti-Semitic height in The Voyage and Travels of Sir John Mandeville, a 14th century work purportedly written by an English knight describing his fantastical journeys through the legendary realm of Prester John and the faraway territories of the lost tribes of Israel. The work is an amalgamation of previous stories from romances and extant encyclopedias. Who wrote it remains a mystery, and it seems likely that the narrating character himself, Sir Mandeville, was entirely an invention. The work claims that in the Caspian Mountains, the, quote, Jews of ten lineages, end quote, that men called Gog and Magog, have been enclosed. It claims that the lost tribes might actually escape their enclosure on one side, but still dare not because they understand no languages but their own. Further, Mandeville foretells how these lost tribes will go out into the world during the time of the Antichrist and will subjugate and destroy all Christian people. Even worse than this is the further implication that the Jews of the Diaspora have taken great pains to preserve their Hebrew language only so that they will be able to communicate with the lost tribes and aid them in their conquest of Christians everywhere. Thus we see that these are really claims of a worldwide Jewish conspiracy 
of global domination, perhaps unsurprising when placed into historical context. A few decades before Comestor's work, William of Norwich's murder gave birth to that other anti-Christian Jewish world conspiracy theory, the blood libel, which I've spoken about in great detail in a previous episode. And the Book of John Mandeville is believed to have been written just a few years after the peak of the Black Death's devastation of Europe, when, as I have also discussed in an even more recent episode, Jews were again scapegoated falsely accused of starting the pandemic as part of a secret and deadly war against Christendom. Now for a brief intermission. Hi listeners, remember that the ads and sponsors of this program only contribute a small portion of the already meager earnings of this show. If you'd like to contribute to this project and help me turn it into a viable enterprise, Remember that you can pledge support on Patreon at patreon.com slash historicalblindness. For as little as a dollar a month, you get access to an ad-free stream of the show that also includes teasers and fully produced patron-exclusive bonus episodes. And at higher tiers, you can get early access to episodes and other perks. Become a patron of the show today and get the full story. This podcast is sponsored by Talkspace. May is Mental Health Awareness Month, and Talkspace, the leading virtual therapy provider, is encouraging people to talk it out in therapy. By talking or texting with a supportive, licensed therapist at Talkspace, you'll gain insights, discover truths, and experience breakthroughs that will improve how you live and how you feel. With Talkspace, just answer a few questions online, and you'll be matched with a therapist. And because you'll meet your therapist online, you don't have to take time off work or arrange childcare. You'll meet on your schedule whenever you feel most at ease. Plus, Talkspace works with most major insurers, and most insured members only pay a $25 copay or less. No insurance? No problem. If you want to make progress toward a mentally healthier place, Talkspace is here for you. Now get $80 off your first month with promo code SPACE80 when you go to Talkspace.com. Match with a licensed therapist today at Talkspace.com. Save $80 with code SPACE80 at Talkspace.com. Can you set the stage a little bit so people understand what happened? In 1969, 14 black student athletes were kicked off their university's American football team for planning a show of support against racism. We were really protesting our treatment on the field. Amazing Sports Stories from the BBC World Service tells their story. We became brothers that day when you did that to us. We made a change. Fighting for what we deserve. Search for Amazing Sports Stories wherever you get your BBC podcasts. Do you have your own podcast yet? If not, as a listener, I bet you're interested in making one. But maybe you don't know where to start, what equipment you can afford, or how to go about recording and getting your show online. If you already have a show, do you feel like less-than-top-notch audio may be holding you back? Or do you not feel like putting in the tedious work editing and mixing your own show? Well, if you like how my show sounds, I may be able to help. I'm starting an audio editing service called The Podcast Professor. I can consult with you on recording setup, equipment and hosting, reduce background noise, level and punch up voiceover, remove breathing sounds, edit your work for focus and flow, mix bumpers and background music, 
and even find music you can license, and I'll take care of the attribution in your show notes. The Podcast Professor also provides editing, fact-checking, and proofreading for scripted shows and blogs, as well as transcription. Visit profpodcast.com, that's P-R-O-F podcast.com, or just email profpodcasting at gmail.com. That's P-R-O-F podcasting at gmail.com to learn more about my services and rates. This year, find your voice and speak to the world and let the podcast professor make you sound great. Now, back to the show. The writer of the Mandeville book seems to have taken some of his notions that the Lost Tribes represented a Jewish threat to Christianity from an earlier writer, Matthew Paris. In Paris's Chronica Majora, and later in the Book of Mandeville, it's suggested that the place where the Lost Tribes settled and or were trapped was Scythia, a somewhat undefined central Eurasian region where resided a race of nomadic horsemen described by Herodotus. These Scythians came to be erroneously identified with numerous warlike nomads, such as the Goths and the Hun. Essentially, Scythian came to mean barbarian hordes from somewhere out that away. Considering the development of the Lost Tribes legend, it's not surprising that they came to be thought of as Scythians eventually, and this led to their further identification with the Golden Horde. Matthew Paris was the first to identify the Lost Tribes with the Mongol invaders who at the time he was writing his massive chronicle were conquering numerous regions of Eastern and Central Europe under the command of Genghis Khan's grandsons. But Matthew, along with most other Europeans, did not call them Mongols or even Scythians, but rather Tartars, who had arrived from their homeland, Tartary a vast and indistinct Asian territory. The name Tartar appears to be a corruption of an actual Turkic ethnic group, the Tatars, who were not so much the Mongols themselves, but rather a people conquered by Genghis Khan and absorbed by his Mongol empire. The name Tatar is believed by scholars to have been corrupted to Tartar as a pun on Tartarus, a hellish abyss from Greek mythology for it was said that these invaders had ridden out of hell, that their homeland was an infernal region, a terrible and uninhabitable abyss. And Matthew Paris goes so far as to include a clearly fictional episode that is akin to the Protocols of the Elders of Zion in its imputation of Jewish conspiracy to betray Christendom. He claims that in a secret meeting like that described in the Protocols forgery, Jews who believed the Tartars or Mongol invaders to be the lost tribes returned conspired to aid their campaign against the Christian West by smuggling provisions and weapons to them. If one doubts Matthew Paris's prejudice against Jews or that he might have invented a Jewish conspiracy like this, one should look further into how his work spread the blood libel conspiracy theory by repeating accounts of Jewish ritual crucifixion, and further examine his depiction of the lost tribes, or Tartars, as irrational beasts with claws and fangs, 
and disproportional bodies. In the 17th century, an English parliamentarian and millenarian writer named Giles Fletcher the Elder would further Matthew Paris's presumption that the Tartars were the lost tribes. By the time that he wrote his work, The Tartars, or Ten Tribes, the Golden Horde no longer ruled its conquered territories in Russia, though some remnants of their Mongol-Turkish confederation remained. Fletcher, who had lived in Moscow as an ambassador for Queen Elizabeth most of a year in 1588 and 89, believed he was uniquely positioned to finally provide evidence for what others before him had claimed, that the Mongols were the lost tribes of Israel. He recognized that his views were somewhat unorthodox, for at the time, most reputable Protestant thinkers believed the quote-unquote millennium or the thousand-year reign of Christ on earth mentioned in Revelation was only a symbolic reference to the time period between the Incarnation and the Second Coming, a view called amillennialism. The apocalyptic view that Fletcher espoused was manifestly heterodox, to put it mildly. He put stock in the idea that the millennium would only begin after the prophesied Battle of Armageddon, when Protestants would vanquish Roman Catholics and Jews reunited with their lost tribes and all of them converted to Christianity would simultaneously rout the Ottoman Empire. But he did not dwell on the eschatology so much as his evidence for identifying the Tartars as the lost tribes who would be converted before ushering in Christ's earthly reign. His evidence was that the, quote, Scythian or Tartar tongue, end quote, which he narrows down further to the quote, Turkish language, end quote, even though this was only one of the languages spoken among the confederation of peoples that was the Golden Horde, was strikingly similar to Hebrew, though he was no linguist, and at King's College studied Greek rather than these languages he was comparing. Unsurprisingly, modern linguists do not find his claims convincing. More than this, though, he further claimed that there were among the Tartars ten hordes, corresponding to the Ten Tribes, and that Timur, or as Fletcher called him, Tamerlane, the Mongol conqueror of the 14th century, had expressly claimed to be descended from the lost Danite tribe. Unfortunately, no other sources appear to corroborate these claims, making them seem wholly invented. Lastly, he pointed to the practice of circumcision among the Tartars as evidence of Israelite cultural remnants even though this practice had likely been introduced into Turkish and Mongol cultures with the spread of Islam. So after all, this first attempt to identify the lost tribes with a known people falls apart under scrutiny, and one finds that the entire legend of the lost tribes likewise becomes hard to credit under close inspection. Contradictions in the scriptures from which the legend derives should be enough to cast doubt on its historicity. First is the matter of the river the northern tribes are said to have needed God's help in crossing as they left the lands of their resettlement and struck out eastward toward lands untouched by men. The foundation of this legend in the apocryphal text 2nd Esdras states that this was the river Euphrates, but from a geographical standpoint, that doesn't make sense. 
If the northern tribes had been settled in the cities of the Medes, as canonical texts clarify, then they had already crossed the Euphrates on their way from Israel to northwestern Iran. So then, if they were crossing the Euphrates again, they would have been on their way back homeward, rather than striking out into the Far East. And maybe they did return, in some numbers, for there is scriptural evidence that the ten northern tribes were never lost at all, at least not in their entirety. Prophetic texts in Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Hosea all promise the repatriation and redemption of the northern tribes, which would seem to indicate that there was definite knowledge of the northern tribes' survival, and knowledge that they had retained their cultural identity even in exile. In fact, throughout Ezekiel, the prophet makes references to tribes other than the only two that supposedly remained 200 years after the Assyrian conquest of the north and in three different chapters addresses, quote, the entire house of Israel, end quote, as though tacitly admitting that members of all tribes remained. Likewise, in the canonical book of Ezra, chapter 6, verse 17, at the dedication of the second temple, a sin offering is made for all twelve tribes, as though the ten lost tribes remained, at least in part. One explanation for these indications is that all the talk in canonical texts of the northern tribes one day returning and being redeemed was not really about the tribes having been deported and physically lost, but rather about the northern tribes' perceived apostasy. In this sense, the northern tribes were only quote-unquote lost in the sense that all sinners and apostates are lost. After all, less than two decades after the fall of the north, in 701 BCE, Jerusalem and the remaining two tribes also fell to Assyrian conquest, resulting in another deportation, this time from among the tribes of Judah and Benjamin. But this deportation isn't even mentioned in the scriptures. The fact that the Assyrian deportation of southern tribes never resulted in a legend of more lost tribes seems evidence enough that Assyrian conquest did not result in absolute obliteration or even complete deportation. But there is further evidence from Assyrian sources, such as inscriptions that summarized the exploits of their kings. These texts give actual numbers for those deported from occupied territories. And while some of the numbers recorded are suspected by scholars to be exaggerations, the number claimed to have been deported from the north is only 27,000 or so, which would not appear to have been a complete evacuation of all their population, suggesting many from the northern tribes were permitted to remain in their homelands. Furthermore, there is reason to believe that northern tribes had ample opportunity to escape Assyrian deportation and seek refuge in the south. After all, the process of their conquest was not sudden. The dismantling of the northern kingdom of Israel had begun all the way back in 738 BCE under the Assyrian king Tiglath-Pileser III. More than one deportation took place as Assyrians took the region piece by piece and we know that Israelites were aware of the deportation policy because the prophets Amos and Hosea are recorded as warning them that they will be exiled. Then there's the fact that their conquest was interrupted 
as Tiglath-Pileser's successor, Shalmaneser V, died just after capturing the major northern cities. Assyrian forces marched home to see the next king, Sargon, establish himself, and did not return to continue their subjugation of the kingdom of Israel for two years, during which time, again, many might have escaped the conquered cities. Population records even show a surge of new citizens in Jerusalem, supporting the theory that many northerners fled to the more secure southern city. After Assyrian control was reasserted and deportation from northern cities resumed, archaeological evidence still appears to support the idea that this deportation was only partial. A consistency of style in later ceramics and architecture stand as evidence that the northern culture was not wiped out. All of this stands as convincing evidence that the ten northern tribes of the Kingdom of Israel were never truly lost at all, a view that conforms well with the fact that this legend did not actually appear until the end of the Second Temple period. The more one looks at the story of the lost tribes of Israel, the more clearly it can be seen as myth. For example, the idea that there is still some undiscovered eastern land where an innumerable people remain cut off from the rest of the world is simply not credible. In fact, with modern knowledge of geography and the known dispersion of peoples, it is even hard to believe that back then the Lost Tribes might have found a land untouched by man in which to remain separate from other peoples, rather than just settling among an existing people and integrating. Thus, for a modern person to believe in the literal existence of the Lost Tribes of Israel, he or she must search for historical peoples or isolated races and make the argument that the Lost Tribe's culture evolved into one we know existed or even still exists. While in a bygone era, explorers might strike out to exotic regions in hopes of finding the realm of Prester John or the abode of the Lost Tribes, today it has become more of an academic quest with those who seek the Lost Tribes searching history books and ethnologies. Thus, much as Giles Fletcher the Elder made his argument that the Mongol Empire was descended from the Lost Tribes, many a theorist has suggested that the Lost Tribes ended up in some other region, in Africa, Japan, Western Europe, or even across the Bering Strait in the New World. And in this way, the legend of the Lost Tribes would experience its own diaspora, and as we will see in part two, would come to be used in a variety of dubious religions and racist ideologies. Thanks for listening to this episode of Historical Blindness. Special thanks go out to my partner patrons, Diane, Robert, Joe, Devlin, Ian, Jordan, and Louise. Though you are dispersed far and wide, you remain part of this tribe. Some music on this episode was provided by Alex Kish. 
visit alexkishmusic.com and contact him to get compositions for your own projects. Additional music from Kai Engel, licensed under a Creative Commons Attribution License. Check out the show notes for a list of the tracks used. You can support the show by pledging on Patreon or by signing up for a 14-day trial of The Great Courses Plus or a free 30-day trial of Audible at my custom URLs. Find those links in the show notes. Also, if you're thinking of starting a podcast or are looking to improve the quality of your show or just reduce your workload in producing it, visit profpodcast.com or message me at profpodcasting at gmail.com to learn about my audio editing services. On the website historicalblindness.com, you can find the blog posts with transcripts of the episodes and bibliographies for further reading. And you can make one-time donations there to support this podcast or at the PayPal link in the show notes. Follow the show on social media and give it a review, especially on Apple Podcasts. Until next time, remember, if you're religious, you may take for granted some church traditions that are little more than folklore and aren't even supported by your holy scriptures, whatever they may be. One can remain devout and faithful and still think critically about what one believes. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a historian, professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that provides a complete overview of U.S. history through storytelling, yet keeps the rigor you'd expect in a university class. Starting with 22-year-old George Washington in his first battle, join me for a chronological telling of the United States' story, its unlikely revolution, fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way through the progressive era. Find History That Doesn't Suck wherever you get your podcasts.